series. I wanted to just take a moment, though, to say thank you to Larry Iman for uh, filling the pulpit for me in the last couple of weeks. Larry did a, a great job bringing two good messages on the walking in the light, and so I just appreciate him doing that. And then uh, all of the other folks that stepped up, our staff, Nan and, and Amy, that have been filling in so ably while I was able to be away. So thank you, and uh, we're glad to be back and uh, glad to be busy doing God's work here at Garden Way Church. So we're entering into uh, our study again in the Gospel of John series, and uh, this is our 39th message in this series. We're getting very close to the end. We've got uh, three or four more weeks to wrap this up. Uh, and today we're, we're calling our message, Rush to Judgment. We're going to be in John chapter 18, beginning in verse 28. Well, the year was 1776. And the American colonies were in the midst of a revolution. The colonists had declared their independence from Great Britain and were now in a fight for their freedom. John Adams was a lawyer and a politician. He was also one of the most influential people in the fight for independence and the establishment of the United States of America. But he was faced with a very difficult decision. He'd been asked to sign the Declaration of Independence, a document that would officially declare the colonies independent from Great Britain. Now, he knew that signing that document meant that he would be putting his life and the lives of his family in danger. It would also mean that he was committing treason against the British crown, and the official punishment for treason was execution by hanging. So John Adams had to choose between doing what he felt was right for the colonies and doing what was best for himself, his family, and their future. And as most of you probably know, after much deliberation, he made the decision to sign the Declaration of Independence. His decision was a brave one, and it changed the course of history. Well, as we'll see today in, in our message, in the text we're looking at, a struggle between two powerful forces often leads to a critical decision for those who care about their world, as well as the lives of those around them. And those kinds of decisions are never easy, and they always come with consequences. Now, thankfully, we serve an all-powerful God who holds it all together and works things for good. He alone is king over culture. He is the king of all kingdoms, and his kingdom is the source of all truth. And so I wanna just take a moment to say, what about you? Are you on a quest for truth? You know, in every sense of life, uh, in every part of life, really, we are in a pursuit of truth. Think about a little baby when, when they reach out to touch the object in front of them, they discover then the reality of what they initially only saw. We spend billions of dollars to go into outer space trying to find out the truth about what's out there. We want to know what is and what is not. And we are in various ways seeking out truth. But sometimes when people encounter truth, truth encounters them. Truth confronts us with pure reality. And that's what happens in our Bible text this morning. This text revolves around a legal inquiry into the truth about Jesus of Nazareth. It occurs at the palace of a man 
by the name of Pontius Pilate. He was the Roman governor of Judea. Now, in our last message a few weeks ago from John's Gospel, we read that Jesus had been brought before the Jewish authorities in the home, first the house of Annas and then the house of the high priest Caiaphas. And they had already decided that they wanted to have him executed. In fact, all the way back in John chapter 11, we read that the high priest Caiaphas had determined that Jesus must die. But these Jewish leaders have a problem. They don't have the legal authority to execute anyone without Roman approval. Their purpose in bringing Jesus to Pilate is to get him to authorize the execution of Jesus. In our quest for truth, our focus today is on three questions asked by Pilate during this trial. And so we're going to begin with the very first question he asks. Question number one, and this question is asked by Pilate to the Jewish leaders. And the question is, what charges are you bringing against this man, Jesus? What charges are you bringing? I want to invite you to read with me the initial part of our text together from John chapter 18, beginning in verse 28. The words are on the screen. Let's read this. Then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It was early morning. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled but could eat the Passover. So Pilate went outside to them and said, what accusation do you bring against this man? They answered him, If this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. The Jews said to him, It's not lawful for us to put anyone to death. This was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken, to show by what kind of death he was going to die. Amen. The word of God. Well, this is, a, a, I think, a perfectly natural question for Mr. Pilate to ask here. Just as in our own legal system, we require uh, an indictment of formal charges specifying exactly what laws have been broken, the Roman system also required formal charges. And so Pilate is following the legal procedure. He's asking the question, what are the charges? What are the charges that you bring against Jesus? But the Jewish leaders don't want to deal in any specifics, do they? Because they know really that they have nothing that would stand up in a court of law. And so rather than give Pilate any specifics, they answer in generalities. They said, well, if this man were not doing evil, we wouldn't have brought him to you. In other words, Pilate, you know, don't concern yourself with the details. Just take our word for it. This, this guy's a criminal. And the way they express criminal, that word in the text, it indicates ongoing doing. And so in other words, they're saying, this guy is a habitual criminal. Just take our word for it. They're saying to Pilate, you know us. We wouldn't say he's a criminal if we weren't. So take our word for it and pass sentence on him. That's what they want. But you see, Pilate knows these leaders as well. He sees through their scheming. And so what does he say? He says, you take care of this under your own laws. I don't want anything to do with it. 
And he says it rather sarcastically. Uh, you know, if you've already tried the matter, you're not willing to give me any specifics, then just handle it without me. It's kind of his attitude there. And so that statement forced the Jewish leaders to admit the real reason that they're there. They wanted Jesus executed. They didn't have the authority to do it themselves. They wanted Pilate to do the dirty work for them. In verse 32, John points out that the death sentence had to come from Rome. And really, that's in order for Jesus' prophecy concerning the way that he would die to be fulfilled. You remember, perhaps, how Jesus talked, really, in our timeline in John. It was three years earlier, back in John chapter 3, when we were back there. And he talked about being lifted up. He was talking about the death of crucifixion. Now, the Jews, when they were allowed to execute execute people didn't practice crucifixion. Their, their way to, to, to execute people was by stoning. Only the Romans practiced crucifixion. And you know, a thousand years, if we want to go back farther in time, a thousand years before, in Psalm 22, King David, as he's writing that song of praise and, and reflection, he describes the death of the Messiah in the terms of crucifixion, long before he has any idea what he's really talking about. Well, so with their response, Pilate goes back in and he wants to question Jesus further. And that's the interaction surrounding his question. What charges do you bring? But you know, I think that's a question that we could ask today as well. What fault do people find in Jesus today that causes them to resist him rather than serve him? What charges do they bring? And in my experience, the accusations are seldom specific. People will say, like the Jewish accusers, uh, things just in generalization like, oh, here's one. Why does, uh, you know, if God's so good, why does he allow bad things to happen in this world? It's kind of general, but that's a, a question. Or they'll say, why would a, a good God uh, send people to hell if they don't even know about him? He, he's guilty of the hardships that we experience, you see? And so we put that on Jesus. We have hardships. We perceive inequities in life, and we shift the blame to Jesus with some vague charges. But really... I want us to understand that's kind of a strange way to look at God. It's a disjointed way to consider Jesus. In response to the suffering in this world, in response to the threat of eternal destruction, in response to the, the hardships and the pain and the disappointment of this life that we all experience, what does God do? He sends his only son into the world that whoever would believe in him would not perish, but would have eternal life. The Son of God left the glories of heaven to suffer and to die on behalf of suffering, broken, lost people like you and I. The Son of God did that for us. And so if accusations need to be made, they really should be made against us for rebelling against God in the first place. 
they should, uh, those accusations could be made against Satan for inciting that rebellion in our life or seeking the destruction of humanity. Who are we to deserve the sacrifice of Jesus on our behalf? We don't often ask that question, do we? Instead, we say, oh, God, why are you so mean? In a vague way. You see, friends, there really are no valid accusations against Jesus. He is full of grace and truth. He is righteous in every way. We may not always understand his ways, but when we trust in him because of his goodness, instead of bringing charges against him, we can rejoice. Rejoice that the charges against us have been dropped because of his willing sacrifice. An honest examination of Jesus should always conclude, actually with the words of Pilate that we find recorded in, in the Gospel of Luke, when Pilate sums it all up and he says, I find no fault in him. That was his conclusion. Well, next we see that Pilate, as he goes back inside, he asks Jesus a question. First he asks the Jewish leaders a question. Now he asks Jesus a question. And the question is this, are you, Mr. Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? Let's read this next section together. Again, the words on the screen beginning in verse 33. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, do you say this of your own accord or did others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. Then Pilate said to him, so you are a king. Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Amen. God's word. Well, why does Pilate ask Jesus this question? Are you the king of the Jews? Well, in his parallel account in the Gospel of Luke, Luke gives us a little more details about what the Jews had said to Pilate about Jesus. Uh, in, uh, <clears throat> in Luke, it says this. It says, the, the Jews began to accuse Jesus, saying, we found this fellow perverting the nation and forbidding to pay taxes to Caesar, saying that he himself is Christ a king. And so the Jewish leaders had concluded that Jesus should be executed because of blasphemy. That is saying that he was equal to God, that he came from God as God's son. But they knew that Pilate could care less about those kinds of allegations. Those were religious things in that silly Jewish religion that Pilate cared nothing about. And so he would never sentence someone to death for blaspheming the Jewish God who he didn't believe in anyway. 
And so what did they do? They, they made up this charge that Jesus was somehow leading a rebellion against Rome. And that's a serious charge. And the accusation has two elements to it. Number one, that Jesus claimed to be a king. Now, in the Roman Empire, there's no king but King Caesar. And to claim to be a king is a very serious matter. Now, that accusation, Jesus is going to answer. But the second accusation was that as a king, Jesus was telling people not to pay their, their tribute taxes to Caesar, the Roman ruler. And that, in reality, was a lie. Jesus had actually done just the opposite of that. Earlier, when, the, when these very same religious leaders had tried to trick Jesus into saying something like their accusation, you remember that Jesus took a coin and he said, whose picture is on the coin? And they said, it's Caesar's. And Jesus made that famous statement, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar and to God the things that are God's. And so Jesus paid his taxes, but they lied about it. So Pilate's question to Jesus is, are you the king of the Jews? But Jesus' answer is not what Pilate expected, as he often has done all through our story, uh, journey through John. Jesus answers a question with a question. And so when Pilate says, are you the king of the Jews? Let's get to the bottom of this. What does Jesus say? Is that your idea, Pilate? Or did somebody else tell you that about me? And I, I see in Jesus' response, I think he's trying to probe into Pilate's conscience a bit, a, a calling to think through things for himself. Are you just parroting what others have said? Or are you really interested in this question of, am I the king of the Jews? Well, Pilate doesn't like that, does he? He's perturbed, and he answers pretty curtly and rudely, do you, do you think I'm a Jew? Now, for a Roman, the Jews were nothing. And so, what are you saying, I'm a Jew? And then he says, it was your people, your chief priests, who've handed you over to me. And then he says, what did you do? You know, that's all he can think of to say is, what did you do? So here's Pilate's pride rearing its ugly head. He, here's his disdain for the conquered, the subservient Jews. He sees Jesus as nothing. Nothing at all. But Jesus has also asked his question to clarify Pilate's question. If the question is really coming from Pilate, then he's asking it from a, a political perspective. But if he's asking it on behalf of the Jewish leaders, then it has to be answered in the context of a religious perspective. Are you the Messiah? And so Pilate reinforces his question with another question in the end of verse 35 when he says, what have you done? All right, just tell me, what, what kind of trouble have you, have you done? You must have done something. He wants to get to the bottom of this, get it over with, and get it out of his, out of his uh, hair quickly. Uh, so tell me, what did you do to make your own leaders mad at you? So here is the heart of Jesus' answer to the question. He says, Mr. Pilate, my kingdom is not of this world. My kingdom is not of this world. He gives proof uh, 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 of that by the fact, he says, my followers did not rise up to protect me when I was arrested. 
Now, we remember a few weeks ago, we saw that Peter, Peter, one apostle, lashed out. He had a little sword, and he lashed out. But Jesus quickly corrected that and took care of that problem. But, you know, any political king, they're ready to fight for their domain, aren't they? But Jesus' kingdom didn't originate in this world. It originates in heaven. And it's very different from the political kingdoms that Pilate is thinking about. So Jesus says, my kingdom is not from this world. And Jesus is saying something here that, friends, we should never forget. You know, throughout time in history, people have done things like taken up arms to advance or to protect the kingdom of God. You might think back to the Middle Ages and the Crusades as one example of this. And friends, we we must be careful not to repeat those kinds of mistakes in our generation. You know what? We don't need to defend the kingdom of God. It's not our job to protect Jesus. He can and he will take care of himself. He doesn't need our help. The advancement of Christianity does not happen through cruise missiles or attack helicopters. The kingdom of God is not about winning political territory. Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world. Now clearly, Pilate is not grasping at what Jesus is saying. He summarizes Jesus' answer this way, and he says, oh, oh, you are a king then. You've admitted it, ha ha. But the answer still depends on what he means by a king. What kind of kingdom is he talking about? And Jesus is giving him the only answer that is true and complete. Jesus says, you say that I am a king. For this purpose, I was born. And for this purpose, I have come into this world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. There's the bottom line for Jesus. He's a king of truth. So he says, you're right, Pilate, I am a king, but not the kind of king you're thinking about. And that last statement is so important. I've come to bear witness to the truth. And so here's Pilate's moment of opportunity. Jesus has come to testify in this court of law, to testify of truth. His kingdom is not of this world's of a higher order. It's, it's not established by military might. It's established by the testimony of truth. How is the kingdom of the Lord advanced on earth? Go into the world and preach the good news. What is the ultimate answer to to war or rebellion or immorality in our culture? Go into the world and preach the good news. You see, the kingdom of God advances one soul at a time. It turns self-absorbed, greedy, rebellious people like you and like me into disciples of Jesus Christ. That's what the truth does when we listen to it. So Jesus affirms to Pilate that he is a king. He's qualified as a statement enough that Pilate should not misunderstand. And in the process, he has brought Pilate face to face with the truth. And so now the conversation has come down to a personal decision for Pilate to make. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. Jesus said, Mr. Pilate, are you listening? 
I am testifying of the truth to you. What will you do with it? The man's eternal destiny hangs in the balance. You see, Pilate thought that he held Jesus' destiny in his hands. But in reality, the opposite is true. Pilate's destiny is at stake here. And that destiny depends upon how Pilate responds to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me, Jesus says. And friends, this is true of you and of me as well. Our destiny hangs in the balance as well. Do we listen to his voice? Do we obey his call? Do we seek his purpose in his plan for our life? Or do we do things our way? Well, finally, one more question to consider. Pilate's next question is his response to Jesus. And it's found in verse 38 when Pilate says to Jesus, what is truth? Let's read this next account together, beginning in verse 38. Pilate said to Jesus, what is truth? And after he had said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him. But you have a custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover. So do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? They cried out loudly, not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber. Pilate said to Jesus, what is truth? Oh, did we go back there? Yeah, we'll stop there. All right, so what is truth? You know, that is a sad response on Pilate's part. And, and you know, how do we know it's not a sincere inquiry? He's not saying to Jesus, what is this truth you're speaking of? No, that's not the tone he uses. His, the tone is, what is truth? This truth you're talking about. We know he's not sincere because he doesn't wait for an answer from Jesus at all, does he? He makes the statement or the question, and then he leaves the room. And he goes back out to talk to the Jewish leaders. What is truth? Jesus speaks of a kingdom that is established in truth, not in tyranny. But Pilate's response is cynical and fatalistic. What is truth? He, he wants to get in the last word, doesn't he? In essence, Pilate is saying, nobody really knows what truth is. Truth for you may not be the same as truth is for me. You know, I can imagine Pilate saying, I've listened to all the great Greek and Roman orators and philosophers wrestle with this issue to no avail. You'll never find this thing called truth in this messed up world we live in. And people make the same statement today. What is truth? Who are we to say what is truth? Your truth is your truth and my truth is my truth. But friends, this question touches upon what one of the greatest issues of our day. And that is, what is truth? Can anyone really know the truth? Is there one truth for me and a different truth for you? Is Pilate's concept of truth just as good as Jesus' concept of truth? What is truth? Well, I want to explain to you for just a few more minutes about what truth is. And the first thing is that truth is something that can be known. That's so important for us to understand. Jesus said, you might remember this back when we were in chapter 8. Jesus said, you, 
and you shall know the truth and the truth shall set you free. So how can we know truth? Well, just before he made that statement, Jesus said to his, his uh, followers, he said, if you abide, remember that word, live in, pitch your tent in, if you dwell in my truth, you truly are my disciples. So friends, the truth of Jesus is found in the word of the Lord. Jesus came to testify to the truth. The word of the Lord is true. It is reliable. It comes to us as a revelation of truth. That's why, that's why we spend time on Sunday mornings looking into the Gospel of John or to other scriptures. That's why we gather in small groups to study the Bible. That's why we spend time looking into God's word because God's word is truth. We believe his word is inspired by the spirit of truth. You know, we are bombarded daily with messages from this world that are not rooted in reality. And frankly, sometimes are simply false messages. We're surrounded by them. Often the deception of Satan has a grain of truth to it just to make his falsehood more acceptable and believable. That's why it's so important to be rooted in God's word. The word of the Lord is true through and through. Jesus sent the Holy Spirit to lead us into all truth. He's inspired his word of God to reveal to us the truth. If we want truth, we can have it. It's not some vague, mysterious, hard-to-discover thing. It's right here in God's Word. Truth is something that can be known. Secondly, truth is as eternal as God himself. All right? Truth doesn't originate in man. It doesn't come from man's philosophy or man's ideas. None of us have a corner on the truth. Because the truth originates with God, who is the creator. He is the God of truth. In fact, a description of God must include the concept of truth. God does not just tell us truth. He doesn't just reveal truth to us, but God is truth. God is love. God is holy. God is righteous. And understanding all these things comes with an understanding of truth who God is, and he is truth. When people say that truth is, is relative, it changes, it's not absolute, then they are misunderstanding the origin of truth. The origin of truth is God, and God is eternal, and he does not change. You might remember that early, earlier in John that Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. When Jesus said that, he wasn't just saying, you know, I have some ideas that you might want to consider. Or here's a possible truth option for you. No, he's saying that the very definition of truth is found in him. And in contrast, the devil is the father of what? Lies. All truth originates in God and all falsehood originates in Satan. And the difference between right and wrong is not found in what I think. It's found in who God is. Truth is as eternal as God 
himself. And then finally, number three, truth is transforming. It changes us if it's obeyed. Peter, we've talked about Peter quite a bit in the Gospel of John. So we remember that Peter, that same Peter that resorted to a sword to defend Jesus, and Jesus scolded him for it. The same Peter who later denied Jesus, not once, not twice, but three times. The same Peter whose faith wavered and was weak at many times. That same Peter wrote these words. When he was an old man at the end of his life, passing on his wisdom to the younger folks he's leaving behind. In 1 Peter 1.22, he writes these words. Now that you, he's talking to Christian people, now that you have purified yourselves by obeying the truth so that you have a sincere love for each other, love one another deeply from the heart. You see, friends, the results don't just come from hearing the truth. Pilate was hearing the truth from Jesus. He was, in fact, standing face to face, literally, with the truth in the flesh, and yet he is making the wrong decisions. Friends, truth is an essential element in the solution to every problem we face in life. I want you to think about that statement for a moment. Every problem that you face in this life, an essential element of a solution is to know the truth of God. So when we have a problem, what do we want? We want God to fix it, don't we? God, I have a problem, fix it. But the way that he normally does that is through a process that involves truth. He's not our magic genie up in the sky. We rub our lamb and get three wishes. God, fix this. God, change this. God, give me this. He's not our heavenly vending machine. We push our button and say, I'll take some of that, some of that. No, he is truth. And when we have a problem, we involve his truth into our life. He brings truth to bear on the problem. And only when we walk in the truth, only when we live in that truth, only when we obey that truth will we enter into a place of peace and hope and security. Do those three traits sound pretty good to you? Peace and hope and security? Amen, for sure. You want some of that? Then walk in the truth. And guess what? Your problems may not go away. I'm sorry to tell you that. But my experience is problems keep cropping up. And they're, they're just there. The problem may or it may not go away, but because you live and walk in the truth, you will be able to find peace despite the current circumstances in which you might find yourself. Isn't that a great, great truth to know? Well, when French Impressionist painter Auguste Renoir was confined to his home during the last decade of his life, Henry Matisse was nearly 28 years younger than him. And these two great artists were dear friends, frequent companions. Matisse would visit Renoir every day. And Renoir, almost paralyzed by his arthritis, though, continued to paint. 
in spite of his infirmities. He had to hold his brush between his thumb and his index finger. That's all that he could manage as he painted. And his students often would hear him as he painted crying out in pain. And so one day as Matisse watched the elder painter work in his studio fighting the, the torturous pain with each brush stroke, he blurted out, August, why do you continue to paint when you're in such agony? And Renoir said this, the pain passes, but the beauty remains. The pain passes, but the beauty remains. And you know, friends, I suppose if we were able to somehow speak to Jesus on resurrection morning, I wonder if he wouldn't have said something similar. The pain of the cross has passed, but the beauty remains. The beauty of new creation, the beauty of a family of disciples that spans the millennia, the beauty of a kingdom established in the hearts of his people, all this is the truth that remains. You know, it may be that you are going through some pain just now in your life. I don't know. Maybe you can't see an end to that pain. But I want to ask you this question. Can you trust? Can you trust that out of the pain that you will come to find a beauty that will last forever? You see, friends, that is the truth of the gospel. We can give that pain to God and ask him to show us the beauty. And so, have you wrestled with that question? What is truth? The answer that a person accepts will determine their eternal destiny. I don't know about you, but I don't want to be like Pilate. I don't want to ask the question, what is truth? And then walk away from Jesus before he can give me an answer. I want to encounter the truth. I want the truth to encounter me and I want to be changed in the process. Jesus came to testify to the truth. He sent the Holy Spirit to lead us into all truth. And friends, truth is available for each one of us who would take hold of it. Jesus makes it available because he is available. If we sincerely want it, if we open our heart to his voice, we will know the truth and the truth will set us free. Let's pray together. Father God, we are so thankful, Lord, that you have given us a way out of the lies and the deception and the rebellion and the brokenness and the heartache of this world. Father, the way that you provide is the way of truth and the way of life. And it is life Father, we thank you for this special gift, this special meal that we have provided for us. The bread that reminds us of the broken body of Jesus. The cup that reminds us of his shed blood. We thank you for this Christ that was born so that we might have the privilege to step into the truth, to live in the truth, and to see you. 
something that rarely happens at Gardenland Church. We're going to take an offering. Um, we don't normally take an offering on Sunday. We allow that to be a worship time between you and the Lord. We provide a, a box there or give online or however you choose to do that. But uh, from time to time, a few times a year, we do take an offering. And when we take an offering, it's never for us. It's to give away. And so today, uh, we are taking up uh, an offering just to express um, our mission in Jesus, which is to love others. And we're going to express that through this annual Thanksgiving offering. And in uh, just a moment, when we start singing, uh, some of the folks in the back are going to come and, and pass trays to collect funds for Thanksgiving meals and supplies that will be provided to people both here in our church and in our community. Now, our hope is to distribute meal kits for 60 families so that people who are struggling to get by will themselves have a reason to give thanks. Each one of these meal kits that we provide uh, costs somewhere around $45. So if you do some quick math there, uh, we're hoping to, to raise $2,700 today or, or more. And we'll see if we do that. I hope we will. Um, usually, here's what happens. We get way more. And I just think that's so awesome that our church is so generous. Uh, and so when the offering is passed, uh, I do encourage you to give generously if you're able. Uh, please keep in mind that this special offering is outside of our regular giving of the ongoing needs of the church. Um, by the way, if you want to contribute electronically, if you just forgot that we we're going to do this today or you weren't prepared, um, you can use your, your phone and dial up gardenway.net and uh, choose the give button and choose special offering. That's what I'm going to do today. Um, uh, but you, any, any way you choose, uh, but any funds that go into the special offering over the next week or so, we know that will be for the Thanksgiving offering. Now, next Sunday, we will be assembling these boxes. And if you'd like to take part in that, um, there's uh, on the black table by the Welcome Center a card that tells you how you can get involved. I believe that's Sunday afternoon. It won't be here at Gardenway. It'll be in another location. But you can help to assemble the boxes. And the next Tuesday morning, we're going to go and pick up all those completed kits. And we're going to deliver a whole bunch of them to our local partner school, Holt Elementary. We're going to bring more back here uh, for folks to pick up here. And more are going to be delivered to our local uh, foster family office that's up the street for foster families. So that's where our 60 boxes are going this year. And uh, if you'd like to help in that way, you can do that as well. Uh, by the way, if you would be blessed to receive one of those meal kits yourself, uh, we would be honored to share that with you. There are some green forms at the Welcome Center. You can fill that out. Let us know that we could get, uh, like to receive a, a box by Tuesday afternoon and pick one up as well. So I'm going to pray and, and uh, then we're going to stand and sing a closing song and uh, the folks in the back are going to come and, um, and uh, receive the offering. Alright, so let's pray together. Father God, we are so grateful for your generosity in our life, Lord, and you bless us in so many ways. We talked about the greatest blessing of all today, the truth. But Father, you bless us in small ways as well. Just the fact that we have a, a meal uh, each and every day, more than one meal. Uh, Father, what a blessing that is. And so we pray that as we share today, that the needs of others would be met through our generosity. As we provide these meals and supplies, I pray that those that receive them would understand what motivates us. May they see Jesus through us.
is in his name that we pray. Amen. So let's stand together as uh, the ladies lead us in this final song. Lift our voices. Praise God from